Mark chapter 1, uh, verses 9 through 11. Verses 9 through 11. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And the voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your word made flesh, who came and dwelt among us and revealed your glory, and then humbled himself and died on the cross for our sins. Thank you that you raised him from the dead back to glory, exalted him at your right hand. Thank you that by your grace today we confess him as our Savior. By your grace today we explore his life, even to find its um, relevance and our meaning in life wrapped up in his life. So walk us through this. Speak to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me ask you a few questions. If somebody were to ask you to tell them the story of creation. How would you tell it? What would you include? What would you leave out and why? Or, what if somebody asked you to tell them the story of mankind? Again, what would you include? What would you leave out and why? What about Israel? Tell me the story of God's people, Israel, again. How would you tell it? And why? Finally, what about Jesus? Tell me the story of Jesus. How would you tell it? What would you include? What would you leave out and why? There are multiple ways any of those stories could be told, and they are told in multiple ways in Scripture. And the fact that we have four Gospels, not one, four Gospels assures us that even in reference to Jesus, there are multiple ways to tell the story. Some non-negotiable elements of the story will be included in every telling of the story, regardless of the storyteller's specific purpose in telling it the way he tells it. And we already know just 13 verses, 11 verses, it was supposed to be 13, into the Gospel of Mark, we already know how he would answer the last of those questions, don't we? We know how Mark would tell us the story of Jesus. So far, he would say, Jesus is the Son of God in whom the new beginning prophesied since the ruin of the old has dawned. That's as far as we got last week. So last week we looked in particular at both of those ideas. Jesus as the Son of God 
as Mark's primary goal in the way that he presents Jesus to his readers, and Jesus as the dawn of a new creation for all who confess with Mark, who confess with Peter in chapter 8, who confess with the centurion in chapter 15, all who respond to Jesus' question that he poses specifically to Peter, but that he poses to the world, that he poses to you and to me, to your co-workers, to your neighbors, to the world. Who do you say that I am? To which all who believe confess you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But I open the way that I did with those questions probing your grasp of things like creation, mankind, Israel, and Jesus, because those are not separate, unrelated stories to each other. I'll even go further. And I'll say that the way the biblical writers tell the story of creation and mankind and Israel is in such a way that prepares us, the readers, for the retelling of those stories in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So it's in the, re, it's in the telling of those stories that we find our place in the bigger story. Created in the image of God, fallen in Adam, in need of adoption into God's true Israel, because by nature we are excluded because of sin and we are outsiders to the covenant, but it's in the retelling of those stories, in the person and work of Jesus Christ, that ruined creation is restored, fallen mankind is redeemed, And every promise to true Israel is fulfilled. And if you confess him as the Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, and your Redeemer, you once again find your place not in the first story, but in the final story. The one that will endure for all time and never be ruined by sin and never be driven out of paradise and never be shut out from the covenant and its promises, but included, adopted, redeemed, secured, safe, and full of joy for all of eternity. And this morning in our text, Mark not only advances the story of Jesus, the son of God, but in advancing the story of Jesus, the Son of God, he simultaneously advances the retelling of the story of creation and mankind and Israel and for us our only hope of redemption. He advances the story two places, which we'll look at in order, one today, one next week. (coughs) He advances the story of Jesus into his baptism and his temptation. So we're going to look at the first of those this week, is baptism. Jesus' baptism in Mark chapter 1, verse 9, is where we meet Jesus in Mark's gospel. No genealogy, no birth narrative, no Mary and Joseph, no childhood of Jesus. But when you step back and you reconsider verse 1, Mark's bypassing of all of those things that would have been essential for, say, Matthew's 
presentation of Jesus to the Jews as their Messiah. Think about it. Matthew, to present Jesus that way has to go back to Abraham, which he does, through Judah, which he does, to David, which he does, through the kings of of Judah, which he does, all the way down to Joseph and Mary. Matthew has to include the birth narrative because it fulfills his readers' prophecies of the virgin birth of God incarnate. It's why Matthew goes on in chapter 2 to tell of the wise men from the east and their interaction with Herod and Joseph and Mary's escape with Jesus to Egypt and Herod's order to slaughter every little boy under two years old. Two years old and under in Bethlehem. Because every step of the way, the word of God was being fulfilled. And Matthew notes it on purpose for his specific target audience five times. But brothers and sisters, that's not Mark's purpose. It's the same reason that Luke, unlike Mark, in some ways, even unlike Matthew, includes a genealogy but goes back even further than Matthew further than David and Abraham, all the way back to the first man, Adam. Because Luke's purpose is to present Jesus as the son of man to his Hellenistic Greek readers. Mark bypasses what others find essential to their purposes, not just to save space. Or to keep his gospel among the four uniquely short. But because the Son of God that he is out to present doesn't need a genealogy. Doesn't demand a birth narrative. Doesn't need to escape Herod's jealous rage. The story of Mark is of the Son of God who came to do his Father's will as his servant. Which is why Mark takes us immediately after verse 1, his purpose statement, into verse 2. After announcing Jesus as the Son of God to those servant of the Lord passages in Isaiah that culminate in that servant that he presents bearing our griefs, carrying our sorrows, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, chastised for our peace, bearing our iniquity like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of his people, making his grave with the wicked, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. And I think this presentation of Jesus makes a lot of sense out of Jesus' baptism and temptation. Jesus didn't appear as the Son of God, march out to the Jordan at approximately age 20, and inform John that his time in God's purposes was up. And that his baptism was now irrelevant or obsolete in God's greater spirit baptism that the prophets foretold would accompany the inauguration of a greater covenant in the person and work of Jesus. It's not how it unfolded. 
brothers and sisters, it's, it stuns me every time that I read it that Jesus, the Son of God, the King of the universe, went out to the Jordan and submitted himself to John's baptism, even though in John's announcement of Jesus soon appearing, John acknowledged himself his own unworthiness to even stoop down and untie Jesus' sandals. And while Mark doesn't include these words of Jesus, if I may invoke one sentence of Jesus that Matthew records at Jesus' baptism, I think the way that we've been talking about Jesus as the Son of God, servant of the Lord, come to do His Father's will, ultimately to be the Lamb of God, the sin-bearer of His people, I think that sheds light on Jesus' response to John's humble acknowledgement, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? And do you remember Jesus' rather confusing words that he said in response? He said, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And Matthew says, upon hearing that, John consented and baptized the Son of God. But what did Jesus mean by those words? And how do they fit enough with our purposes in Mark to bring them in, which I'm committed to doing as minimally as possible throughout this study because I'm not preaching on a harmony of the Gospels. I'm preaching on Mark, and I really want to restrain myself as much as possible to, to find Mark's purpose, to see Jesus the way that Mark sets out to present him specifically. Yet... This one sentence that I want to bring in. I want to read um, a short paragraph that really resonated with where I was tracking at this point in Jesus' study. It's from a commentary on Matthew. Uh, Grant Osborne is the author, if that means anything to you, if that's helpful to you. He comments briefly on the two obvious ideas in that statement. He comments briefly on the fulfillment language there and the righteousness language there. Here's a paragraph. The best way to understand it, it referring to Jesus' statement as a whole, is to combine two nuances. First, there is a salvation historical thrust that that as Jesus identifies with his people in preparing for the saving activity of God. So, his saving work is the will of God equals righteousness. Second, Jesus obeys his Father's will. His Father's will equals let it be so now, for thus it becomes us to fulfill all righteousness, his Father's will. Jesus obeys his Father's will by assuming the role of the, of the suffering servant from Isaiah 53 in particular, and so endorses John's ministry. I kind of want to develop that a little bit in saying this, that in Jesus' stunning submission to John's baptism, two incredible things happen. First, Jesus identifies himself with us. And second, God identifies Jesus with himself. The significance of the former, uh, 
likely is obvious to you. We're sinners. We're sinners. We went out to John responding to his call to repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We went out to John responding to that call precisely because we are sinners and our only hope of forgiveness and reconciliation and redemption was in the Father's covenantal promises that are realized through a repentance expressed in submitting to his baptism. Which pictured the washing and clothing and purifying process by which God's people realized their covenant relationship with God under the old covenant. And when we, as sinners, went out to John to be baptized by him in response to that call from John in reference to us, there was no, why do you come out to be baptized by me from him? But here Jesus is. The Son of God in the appearance of a man. The new beginning in human flesh. The kingdom of God at hand in a person. Here Jesus is unmistakably, intentionally, in glad submission to his Father's will in order to fulfill all righteousness required of him on the way to accomplishing his saving purposes. Here Jesus is identifying himself with us. Sinful man, whom he came to save. And if that's not enough, I think that it's even more specific than that. So, as such, as the Son of God, as the servant of the Lord, come to do his Father's will and redeem his people from their sins, Who else specifically was Jesus necessarily identifying himself with? Don't answer that. In identifying himself with sinful man, whom he came to save, is Jesus not inseparably, necessarily, prophetically, covenantally identifying himself all the way back with the first man and the first covenant and the first representative head of the human race whose sin and violation of the covenant made with him brought the curse upon the world that plunged all of us, all of humanity in him into sin, mortality, and death. So that this is more than Jesus just showing up, submitting himself for symbolic purposes only to a meaningless ritual that makes us feel good. This is the Son of God incarnate come to do his Father's will as a servant and in submitting to this righteousness because it was the Father's will Jesus is not only identifying himself with sinful humanity in general who believe in the promises and take God at his word and hope in a redemption that would be accomplished in a sin-bearing Savior 
and who seek forgiveness and justification and adoption and inclusion by faith alone and him alone, he is also specifically identifying himself by identifying himself with us as another Adam. In fact, the last Adam. Meaning the final greater and greatest representative head of his people who, unlike the first Adam, wouldn't bear the guilt of violating the covenant or of bringing the curse upon the world or of plunging his people into sin and mortality and death and exclusion from the covenant. But he came to bear the guilt not only of Adam, but of all in Adam who would simply believe. He came unlike us who bear our own guilt under the covenant for our violations and are commanded to repent and believe. He came to bear our guilt and our sin in fulfillment of the covenant to form in him It's what's taking place to form in him as our new and greater and final and greatest representative head to form in him a new creation. A new redeemed humanity. Under a new and everlasting covenant. For all who repent and believe this gospel. So there is not only a retelling of the story of creation going on here in a new creation that was announced in Jesus. The kingdom of God come at hand, in person, in him. There is a retelling of the story of man going on here as well. Whereas the first man and all in him made in the image of God under the first creation entered into covenant with God and then broke the covenant, brought the curse on the world and plunged humanity into sin, mortality and death. The second man, the last Adam, the final prophesied perfect representative head of his people came to redeem both all in Adam who repent and believe in his saving accomplishments to redeem creation as well and to inaugurate a new covenant under which redeemed, restored creation and redeemed, restored humanity will live forever. Now, back to the baptism itself. Three, um, probably more than three, but I'm saying three, very important phenomena accompany Jesus, in particular, his coming up out of the water. Verses 10 and 11 say, And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open, and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. So, there's the tearing of the heavens. There's the Spirit descending, and there's the Father's voice from heaven, each of which carries its own significance, but together affirm the same reality, which in James Edwards' words, signified the inauguration of God's eschatological kingdom. A new day had dawned. A new beginning 
had dawned. God's kingdom had come. So let's explore all that. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record the first phenomenon. Am I getting the singular and the plural mess up there? Phenomena is the plural, right? But judging by the fact that only like three of you are shaking your head, it wouldn't matter either way. So I'll just say whatever. They all record the first phenomenon. The heavens being, I'm just going to find a different word. Uh, Occurrence. They all record the first occurrence. The heavens being opened. But none of them, again, for their purposes, none of them make explicit the significance of that imagery, which is directly from Isaiah chapter 64 and verse 1. And this is, this is stunning and gorgeous. In its context, God had been speaking in beautiful imagery of Israel's salvation and restoration, which God himself, he says, would bring to them. Just li- listen to these verses. In light of this, they took on new light that of all the times I've read Isaiah, it just... Uh, brought the beauty of them to the forefront um, like, like never before, and I hope to do the same to you. But in, in light of all that we've said, consider this section of Isaiah. We have to go back in 63, chapter 63 if you're looking for the specific reference. I didn't write it down, my bad. You, you shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Later, he says, if that's not enough, later, he says, say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. I could go on with the imagery in that text where God identifies himself as coming down to accomplish this salvation of his people. But in Isaiah chapter 63 and verse 7, so there's a point of reference for you. In Isaiah chapter 63 and verse 7, Isaiah begins to respond to all that God has just revealed to him. And he says in verse 15 of Isaiah 63, look down from heaven and see. Meaning, he's saying, in light of all you've said, God, look down and see your people now. In their current state, they have forsaken you. The last verse of Isaiah 63 says this. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled. Like those who are not called by your name. And in the very next verse, which is Isaiah 64 and verse 1, Isaiah's prayer goes from look down from heaven and see to, oh, that you would rend, tear the heavens and come down and do for your people everything that you've just said you would do. So what does it mean when Jesus is baptized in the Jordan and the heavens are torn open 
Brothers and sisters, it means that Isaiah's prayer is answered. God Himself has rent the heavens and come down to do in Jesus everything He said He would do. And when it was done, it was not the heavens that would symbolically tear open again. What was it? It was the veil of the temple by which Jesus led the way for His people under the new covenant, into the presence of God, under all the names that Isaiah prophesied over them, the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, sought out, not forsaken. Is that not stunningly gorgeous? So the heavens were torn open. Remember, don't get lost in the, maybe I'm over-structured this morning, so when I say remember, said earlier that two significant things are happening. And he said, I thought you said three. No, I said three things happened at, when he came up out of the water. But before that, I said um, two significant things were happening at his baptism. Jesus identifying himself with us. The Father identifying Jesus with himself. So on, on the one hand, we've looked at what Jesus was doing. He was obeying his Father. He was fulfilling all righteousness but identifying himself with those he came to save as well. But these three phenomena are what the Father is saying in Jesus' baptism. The heavens torn open. This is God saying he has come down in human flesh in answer to Isaiah's prayer that he would come and save his people, redeem his people, bestow on them all the beautiful things that he promised them. But in the Spirit descending, this was the Father sending the Spirit to anoint and empower Jesus for what was to come for the next three and a half years of his life and ministry all the way to his death on the cross. And in my reading, one of the commentaries that I found helpful actually uh, quoted something that Piper said in one of his sermons. And if it was good enough for the commentator to quote it, I'll share it with you as well, because it's really good. Um, so this is a Piper quote. When Jesus was baptized, along with all the repenting people who wanted to be on God's side, it was as though the commander-in-chief had come to the front lines, fastened his bayonet, strapped on his helmet, and jumped into the trench along with the rest of us. And when he did that, his Father in heaven, who had sent him for this very combat, signified with the appearance of a dove that the Holy Spirit would be with him in the battles to come. But remember, there is a retelling of stories going on here as well. Of creation, of mankind, of his people, So think about it. So far, Mark has brought us back to creation to portray a new beginning. A new creation in the appearing of Jesus. But the appearing of the Spirit at Jesus' baptism is not just a random detail. And since again, I all but given hope to say anything about Jesus' temptation in the desert today, I'll I'll share a really helpful explanation of the significance of the Spirit's descent here. And I thought uh, 
it really clicked with me by something Tim Keller said. So it's somewhat lengthy, requires you to stay engaged, but it's really good. In the sacred writings of Judaism, there's only one place where the Spirit of God is likened to a dove, and that's in the Targums, the Aramaic translation of the Hebrew Scriptures that the Jews of Mark's time read. <clears throat> in the creation account, the book of Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2 says th that the Spirit hovered over the face of the waters. The Hebrew word here means flutter. The Spirit fluttered over the face of the waters. To capture this vivid image, the rabbis translated the passage for the Targums like this. And the earth was without form and empty, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God fluttered above the face of the waters like a dove, and God spoke, let there be light. Point is, there are three parties active in the creation of the world. God, God's Spirit, and God's Word through which He creates. The same parties are present at Jesus' baptism. The Father, who is the voice, the Son, who is the Word, and the Spirit fluttering like a dove. Mark is deliberately pointing us back to creation, to the very beginning of history. Just as the original creation of the world was a project of the triune God, Mark says, so the redemption of the world the rescue and renewal of all things that is beginning now with the arrival of the king is also the project of the triune God. The heavens are torn open, signifying God had come down to reclaim his people and restore his creation. The spirit descending signifies God's anointing him and empowering him for the purposes for which he was sent, culminating in his death on the cross. The third occurrence at Jesus' baptism was a voice of his father from heaven, which said, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Now, uh, first, um, going back to the retelling of the story, it was what? Creation, the spirit hovering above the waters, then what? Genesis 1-3, and God said, God speaks. In Mark, it's new creation in Jesus, the Son of God, the Spirit descending at his baptism, then what? God speaks, just like he did at creation. Here, for the first time in 400 years, he speaks. And when he speaks, just like he said he would over his people in Isaiah, just like he did in reference to the first man and all in him at creation before the fall, what does God speak? He speaks his favor over his people. He says, you are my beloved son, and with you I am well pleased. So let me ask you this. When will God fully, finally declare as he declared at the end of the sixth day, after the creation of his image bearer, the first Adam, when will God fully, finally declare all is well again? When will those titles over his people promised in Isaiah, the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, sought out, not forsaken? 
when will those terms fully, finally be bestowed? Well, on the one hand, in Jesus, here, where in the Father's voice of favor in the person of His Son, He declares His favor on all who would be united to His Son by faith in His death and resurrection. But fully, finally, when those He came to save are all safe in Him. Every last one of them. Including you and me. Brothers and sisters, in Christ alone is where we find our favor with his Father, our God. In Christ alone, we are his holy people. His redeemed sons and daughters sought out, not forsaken. And in Christ alone, our story is retold. From cursed creation to new creation from fallen and driven out of his presence to redeemed and adopted and welcomed home. From outsiders to his covenant to insiders. And as we'll see next week, from the wilderness and back to the garden. Let me throw out one more Helpful quote from another voice as we close. Once again, it's Keller. Mark weaves his account into the shared story of his readers by drawing parallels between the Hebrew scriptures and the life of Jesus. In Genesis, the spirit moves over the face of the waters. God speaks the world into being. Humanity is created and history is launched. And what's the very next thing that happens? Satan tempts the first human beings, Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden. And what's the very next thing that happens in Mark's Gospel? It's verses 12 and 13. It's Jesus' temptation in the desert. It's where we'll go next week. And where you go this week, I hope, is confidence and rest and rejoicing in your place. In Jesus, let's pray. Father in heaven, I cannot help but think in light of all the hope that this text and the realities behind it gives of the psalm that Josh read a few minutes ago, the darkest psalm in the entire Psalter. And to know, Lord, that that darkness is vanquished in the person and the work of Jesus. So, Father, those of us here who believe in Him find great hope, great encouragement. In the reality that in Christ we're sought out, not forsaken, a holy people, a redeemed people. We find hope in life as it is now in your kind providence, and we find hope in 
all that remains yet to be bestowed in the future. So we place ourselves in joyful, humble, yet confident rest because of all that you've given us in Jesus. For we pray this in Jesus' name.